Good morning. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. The second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It is just one verse. I will read chapter 6, verse 24. Listen for the word of the Lord. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Four thousand weeks. If you live to be eighty, as some of you have, you will have lived a little over four thousand weeks. If you live to be ninety, as some of you may have, you will have lived almost forty-seven hundred weeks. Put this way, it sounds startlingly brief. Since ancient times, philosophers have reflected on the brevity of life. Roman philosopher Seneca wrote a treatise called The Shortness of Life, lamenting that this life we've been granted rushes by so fast, so swiftly, that we come to its end just when we are getting ready to live. Not just philosophers, but ordinary people have thought about how to live life to the fullest, to make the most of one's life, to make judicious use of one's time, to live meaningfully. Since our time on earth is limited, the question arises, how shall we best spend our time? One of the more recently written books on this topic is entitled 4,000 Weeks written by Oliver Berkman. Berkman wrote this book when our sense of time was radically changed and heightened during the lockdown of the pandemic. For so many people, it felt as though the future, where we mentally live much of the time, had been put on hold. With our normal routines and plans for the future disrupted as they were, it was almost inevitable that we would begin to think and question the ways we were spending our time, and not just our time, but also our attention. At the heart of things, Berkman writes, is the sense that there are important and fulfilling ways we could be spending our time, even if we can't say exactly what they are. Yet we spend our days doing other things instead. I think what Berkman is talking about is a yearning for meaning. We yearn for meaning and want to spend our finite lives and our finite attention on what really matters. This topic assumes freedom. It assumes that we are free to choose what really matters to us, how we're going to spend our time and our attention. In the scripture lesson from the book of Exodus, all that happens at Mount Sinai assumes such freedom. 
God has just freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and now gives them commandments, the first of which commands them to maintain their freedom. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God doesn't free the Israelites from slavery so that they can become enslaved again. When they were slaves in Egypt, they were told how to spend every minute of their time. They were used for their labor and valued for their production. The only value they had was utilitarian. At Sinai then, after God freed the Israelites, the first thing God says to them is, don't ever become enslaved again. From here on out, you shall have no other gods, and you will relate to me in a way that preserves freedom, yours and mine. Let's look at the second commandment that accompanies the first. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. God is clear here that they are not to worship any God that can be formed into an image, that can be replicated, domesticated, reduced, or pinned down. From this second commandment, we can assume God's own absolute refusal to be, re to be reduced into an idol. Elsewhere in the Bible, we find what's at stake in this prohibition. In Psalm 115, the psalmist contrasts Israel's God with other nations' idols, saying, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk. They make no sound in their throats. Those who make them are like them. So are all who trust in them. According to the psalmist, it's not only the idols that have no freedom, that cannot do as they please, but it's also the people who trust in these idols, who lose their sense, their sensibility, and freedom. The same theme resounds in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations, for the customs of the peoples are false. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of an artisan. People deck it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor is it in them to do good. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Everyone is 
stupid and without knowledge. Goldsmiths are all put to shame by their idols, for their images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. There is so much we can glean about how God understands God's self and us and about the kind of relationship God wants to have with us in these verses. Unlike idols, God is a living God. God is a being who can think, who can feel, who can speak, who can move, and who has agency and freedom. This God refuses to be reduced to a product and refuses to pervert our relationship with God to one in which we foolishly think we can form God, carry God around, put God here or there, nail God down, bring God out when we want and put God away when it suits our purposes. It is clear from the second commandment that God will not be harnessed or employed or utilized or mobilized for our projects even good projects, because God has no utilitarian value. Just as God treats us as free beings, God, too, is free. What happens at Sinai, then, is a social experiment. God is codifying into law a covenantal relationship in which neither party will be enslaved, encumbered, forced, coerced, or used. Everyone will be free to be faithful or not. Yes, God demands from us our obedience, our undivided loyalty and trust. Jesus himself interpreted God's commandments as demanding our single-minded love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And yet, the most God does is command us. God doesn't coerce or control us. There is no extrinsic punishment in this law imposed upon us when we fail to love God with our whole hearts, when we spend our lives in pursuits that divert our attention away from God or when we try to harness and use God for our ends, or when we simply forget about God. When we do any of these things, the consequence we have to live with is a broken relationship or lack of relationship with God. I'd like to end this sermon with the biblical story in which Jesus was approached by a man concerned perhaps about the brevity of life. As the story goes, the man ran up, knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, Honor your father and mother. And the man responded, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Looking at the man, Jesus loved him and said, You lack one thing. 
Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. This story is shocking for all of us, because even when we go through our lives thinking that we have not done anything egregious, we haven't murdered anyone, we haven't robbed anyone, we haven't done anything outstandingly bad, Jesus would look lovingly at us and ask, how did you spend your life? What did you pursue? To what did you give your time, your talent, your treasure, your heart, your soul, your mind, and all your strength? Yes, life rushes by so swiftly that we come to its end just when we think we're really ready to live. The good news is that at any time, at even the end, Jesus will look at us lovingly and ask us what we love, what we are going to choose with our whole hearts. And the good news is that we are free to choose. This summer in worship, we are spending time reflecting on the whys of our faith, why we worship, why we strive to be a witness in the community, why we practice being church, and why we invite others to join us. Imagining Jesus looking lovingly at us, and in the spirit of self-reflection, I invite us to answer the question, what is it that you love? In the pews, you'll find a basket with cards that you're invited to use as you reflect. And for those who are worshiping online, you can um, find a paper nearby that you might record on your reflections. And we're calling this, friends, a personal affirmation of faith because it forms the beginning of our response to Scripture, the Word proclaimed. Your reflection can also be understood as an offering of yourself and to that, and if you wish, you may place it in the offering plate as it comes by later in the service, or if you're worshiping online, you are welcome to email your reflections to your pastors. <laughs>